Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Talk to another writer. Who? Oh, Jesus. You throw a rock in here, you'll hit one. Do me a favor, Fink. Throw it hard. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, my name's John Bleasdell, I'm a critic and writer on film, and today I'm going to be talking about 1980s comedy with Nick Desemlian. Nick is a features editor at Empire Magazine and his work has appeared all over the place, Rolling Stone and Stuff and Time Out as well. But he's also the writer of a book which I'm really excited to talk about. Wild and Crazy Guys, How the Comedy Mavericks of the 80s Changed Hollywood Forever. There's no getting around it, the comedies of the 80s were some of the best films Hollywood produced in that weird decade. The likes of John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Rick Moranis, John Candy, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Bill Murray and Eddie Murphy. To name but, well all of them. If you enjoy the episode, please like and subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Rod 
Roger Lewis, when he wrote the Peter Sellers biography, in, his, in the introduction, he had this thing where he said all of his friends who he said, I'm, I'm doing the biography of Peter Sellers, went, oh, wow, what a brilliant job. It's going to be so much fun. You're watching all those Peter Sellers movies, you know, it's what a dream job. And he sort of says, I can't tell you how depressing it has been because, you know, partly because of who Peter Sellers is, but also even watching the film sort of had an accumulative effect of sort of trying to analyze comedy, knowing what he knew about Peter Sellers. And I was wondering when you were sort of researching the film and you were going back to these films and watching them again, was that like, was that just like, I'm a kid in a sweet shop or was, was there any ever a point where it's like, Oh man, this is a bit of a struggle. Oh, well, I think there's definitely a point when you're covering like 15 years of, cinema with like eight main characters there's going to be a point where you feel burned out a little bit like that's kind of why i was watching things as i went so i didn't sit down and watch everything and then start writing like i don't think i could have handled that because you know i started off by watching the first five years of saturday night live and so just that is a massive marathon of, of stuff lots of which is quite mediocre or bad so you know you're already off to quite a challenging start but that's why I kind of meted it out. And, and and with these guys, a lot of them go off the boil as as their careers kind of wound on. So watching, you know, the first couple of films by Chevy Chase or, you know, Eddie Murphy, you know, they're great. They're, they're classics. And then as they go on in time, generally the films sort of get worse. I mean, there are people like Dan Aykroyd where he was kind of pinballing between a classic and a disaster and then back to a classic. And in a really interesting way that you just never knew what the hell was going to like come of it but yeah it's when you when you're covering that much it's a lot to watch so there's inevitably going to be patches where you are questioning your life choices i think halfway through modern problems i was i was probably having a midlife crisis myself (laughs) (laughs) talking about saturday night live do you still watch saturday night saturday night live i don't really i was just wondering how it compared the the sort of the the so-called heyday and and today because i know it sort of goes in in waves yeah, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that it was never that that golden age of Saturday Night Live that people have in their heads was never there. Like, I, I kind of feel like that was a phantom thing. And having sat down and watched episode after episode of the, those early years, there's some great stuff in it. You know, there were amazing sketches, but even back then, there was absolute dross. You know, even with all of those guys at the peak of their powers, you know, the idea of there was like an hour of amazing TV, that just never existed. Right. So um, I think it's always been kind of, you know, a lot of patchy stuff with some diamonds in there. I kind of keep track of what's going on. Like I know about the Elon Musk stuff that's happening and I'll watch the good, the monologues I want to watch, I'll watch on YouTube. It's really accessible now, which is great. Uh, There's a great app on the iPad where you can kind of punch in the performers and it will, you can type in Bill Murray and Eddie Murphy and it will pull up the two sketches they did together, which is really cool. But yeah, I I don't think that halcyon age of Saturday Night Live really existed in the way that people think it did. I mean, when you started getting the the Saturday Night Live group leaking into cinema, um, who who were the pioneers there? It's a good question. Or, I mean, or, or was it more the National Lampoon gang? And then, I mean, there was there was a quite a lot of crossover, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. I mean, the, the kind of the starting point for it all was Animal House, which was the National Lampoon guys writing a movie, and then Belushi ending up on it, and John Landis getting involved, and so there was this interesting kind of cross-pollination of things which then went on and all the interesting little collaborations you get along the way i mean belushi was amazing in that film he wasn't particularly a creative force behind it and blues brothers is was much more 
his creation and Aykroyd's creation. There were, there were people like Eddie Murphy who ended up in the right film at the right time. But then there were people like Dan Aykroyd who, and Steve Martin who were actually writing their own stuff. And yeah, they were much more the kind of the pioneering forces, I think, because they were envisioning the characters, building a vehicle around them. And so they were kind of driving, driving it. Whereas I think Eddie Murphy was much more, you know, he was good at picking stuff in the early days, but he wasn't really creating the stuff himself. What sort of attracted you to looking at, at this period and the, these films? Was it, was it from your own sort of viewing habits when you were growing up? Yeah, definitely nostalgia. You know, these these were the movies, not all of them. Modern Problems I did not watch as a child, but um, Ghostbusters was massive for me. I was not allowed to watch Ghostbusters on my sixth birthday, and I'm still furious about it. Um, you, you, you were supposed to go to the cinema to see it and... No, I was I was I was four when it came out, so oh. I missed that. I did not see Ghostbusters on the big screen. I have seen it on the big screen now. Uh, in fact, I've seen Secret Cinema Ghostbusters, which was which was pretty fun. But no, I I wanted to watch it on VHS, and I was I was uh, not allowed because it had ghosts in it. Ah, for for that reason. <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of creepy. I mean, I, I'm going to make you very jealous now. When I, I saw it, and, and I brought this up in a previous episode as well, so this is going to be a well-worn story by the time uh, by the time we finish. I saw it in Barron Furnace in the, in the, the then Astra Cinema, and it was packed, absolutely packed, on a Friday night. And they were dancing in the in the aisles during the theme song so much so that they stopped the film and the manager came out and said look if you're going to if you're not going to sit down in your seats we're going to you know we're going to show you making cheese in belgium <laughs> some sort of terrible because this was still the time of the B movies so they would put these little you know submarine building in vickers and uh, yeah. and off you go so it was it was as close to the sort of um, rock around, you know, the what was the Bill Haley rock around the clock? Yeah, uh, that sort of juvenile delinquency in the cinema. I've heard the legends of people singing along to the Ghostbusters song. I've not witnessed that happen, but I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to imagine the cinema manager at the place you're at being forced to dress like Stay Puft Man, just to, <laughs> just to kind of. Um, I would have loved to have seen Ghostbusters when it came out, and Beverly Hills Cop as well. I mean, both coming out the same year, and apparently Beverly Hills Cop people were screaming and the full hysteria. That would have been an amazing thing to experience. I didn't ex really experience any of these films in the cinema. Groundhog Day, I did, but not really any of the '80s ones. But no, I mean, it's a massive nostalgia thing for me but then also you know working through empire i kind of got to meet a lot of these guys and interview them and so you know as that kind of went along i got more and more interested in the making of these films and the making of these films seemed quite dramatic uh for some reason probably to, due to their personalities but you know the the story of how blues brothers got made is kind of as interesting as the film and as kind of involves as as much insanity as the film itself so yeah i was just kind of drawn to this this genre and it seemed like quite a chaotic kind of turbulent sort of time in hollywood with these people they're literally wild and crazy guys <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i hope it lives up to the title yeah I, I, you know when you're calling a book that you have to you know provide a certain amount of of wildness and craziness but i i think it just about comes off i mean there's there's some quite a lot of debauchery in there Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Animal House sort of feels like not only the sort of spur for the actual comedy that goes on and much imitated. I mean, there's so many, uh, I mean, even in, in the book, you have like Stripes and mm. Meatballs and Caddyshack, and they all feel like it's Animal House on a golf course. It's Animal House in the army, like as a template. But it also feels like something of a template for just the way they're living. And it's almost an ethos 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Belushi and, and Bluto are not dissimilar in their uh, in their lifestyles. And yeah, it was it was a weird it was a weird thing where these stars are almost being encouraged. You know, that when they're getting paid this much money to play crazy anti-authoritarian people, anti-authoritarian. That's a hard word to say. People, you know, they kind of that's going to leak into how they actually behave. And so that's another interesting element. Is on the one hand they're kind of these chaotic forces. On the other hand, they're working in Hollywood where you have to you have to follow a script and you have to stay on schedule. And there's a lot of money involved. And and you've got authority figures on every single set trying to keep you under control. And so you've got some um, some quite interesting stories of them butting heads with people. Who do you think was the most sort of difficult to deal with in that way uh, i mean there's a bit in the book i think you know there's obviously the belushi story which is tragic in the way it ends but even someone like chevy chase seems to be a really you know who who looks more the straight guy but uh yeah he kind of he does some stuff he does some stuff uh much of it cocaine fueled i think he was challenging to uh, to try and control i think bill murray definitely very hard to, but even eddie murphy who you know, would have meetings at Paramount and people would be trying desperately to like get him to sign up to stuff. And he would just sit there with his entourage. You know, I think one of the, yeah, one of the, one of the people who was trying to get him to, to read scripts would call it my eye, Mego, my eyes glaze over because he would just sit there and lose interest within like half a sentence of the pitch. <laughs> so, but you've got these guys who are just so powerful in a way that comedy stars aren't anymore. Like there's no one with the clout, you know, there's no comedy star in Hollywood that is like Eddie Murphy in terms of, just the sheer like power and swagger and 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 you know how do you try and control someone like that who's making so much money and um, does what he wants? But um, yeah, I, you know there are a couple in the book that don't behave like that. Maybe three people. Maybe you know Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, John Candy. I think are the nice guys who mm. probably you could have a civilized conversation with and would sit and listen to you. But probably over half of them were kind of you know human tornadoes you were trying to trying to control. Yeah, um, look great on stage, but you don't want to take home to mother. Probably not. No, probably not. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. How about, I mean, like when I was thinking about them as well in terms of, say, Robin Williams and the, and the sort of trajectories of, of stars that sort of blossomed in the late 80s, early 90s, and a little bit after the guys you're talking about, although Williams is a sort of contemporary, they they do like uh, uh, I mean he, there seems to be a tendency for for those even someone like Jim Carrey to move away from comedy at a certain point and do more dramatic roles. These guys they sort of try to do that as well, don't they? I mean Bill Murray tries and and it doesn't quite work out. Yeah, there's there is something about. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Robin Williams because he was almost moving into drama from the beginning. Like if you look at his, I had quite, you know, I've had a few people say, why didn't you cover Robin Williams? Obviously he wasn't really moving with this group and he wasn't really act, performing with them and, and starring in films. But also if you look at his uh, filmography, like Robin Williams right from the start in The World According to Garp and, and, you know, he doesn't actually do that much comedy in the 80s. He gets much more into comedy in his second decade but with the others you're right like they're all all these comedy guys trying to move into drama and it's interesting because it goes the other way around with action stars if you look at like the action stars of the 80s they're all trying to move into comedy desperately and the comedians are moving the other way so it's there's this interesting thing like whatever whatever someone is kind of like pegged to they're trying to get away from it it's always the grass there aren't many people who just want to yeah 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny that because of the action stars, of course, you know, Schwarzenegger doing Junior and all, all those comedies, Sylvester Sloan, Stop, or My Mum Will Shoot. My Mum Shoot. But even Bruce Willis, I remember Bruce Willis being in Die Hard and thinking, what's the guy from Moonlighting doing in Die Hard? I mean, I I thought it was, yeah, I mean, you know, look, bless my prophetic soul. I thought, wow, he's really, he's making a fool of himself trying to be this action hero. Yeah. And I think I, a lot of people thought that, you know, they took his name, they took his face off the poster two weeks before the film came out. And Really? Yeah, the original poster was Bruce Willis's face big with a little Nakatomi Plaza next to him. And it tested the worst of any poster that Fox were doing. And so they did another poster that was a giant building with a tiny Bruce Willis. And that was the poster that went out. And then, you know, after the film came out, they then put the original poster out because it turned out it worked. But that's how kind of people... You know, and then obviously Bruce Willis did comedy, got out of comedy, and then went back to or tried to get back to comedy with like Hudson Hawk and and things which didn't work. So yeah, it's always interesting watching people try and flip from one thing to another. Yeah, that's such a funny story that I I feel validated to some degree, and yet immediately invalidated by the fact that (laughs) I was making the same mistake as everybody else. I suppose you were saying earlier that there was this there's this sort of trajectory that that these comedy stars seem to go on, where they have this sort of relatively brief sort of burst of absolute, you know, the stars align. I mean, do you think that's a do you think that's something specific as well to comedy? Because you know, it doesn't seem to you know Anthony Hopkins. You can go back to magic and then forward to to the father and he's pretty much he's pretty much always there but with someone like will ferrell you're, you're sort or, or or um chevy chase you're sort or, or eddie murphy you're kind of going one two three and you're done you know and that's that's you you've, you've had your four or five years of real peak hollywood bankability and then the projects get worse and and there's occasional renaissances and bow fingers and late yeah. you know blips but you know you got to wait for the donkey to come along in shrek it's weird isn't it like the bigger the star gets the more they get kind of stuck in one doing one particular thing whereas anthony hopkins is obviously massive but he he's he's not and he's not eddie murphy so no. he can experiment with his persona not that he you know but he can play a, a serial killer then he can play a butler a few years later and people will accept it whereas i think you look at eddie murphy and, and when he tried to do something really experimental generally people weren't interested not that i don't think he particularly was experimental but steve martin for instance you know he did the jerk and everyone kind of knew him for doing that kind of shtick on stage and then when he tried to do like a musical or he tried to do this or tried to do the film noir thing like nobody knew what to do with it they were like can you go back and do the jerk again which he didn't want to do yeah it's 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 interesting i mean what i liked about these guys and what it, what makes writing about them interesting generally is that they were trying to experiment all the time they weren't just doing the same thing or at least they weren't for like 10 15 years and then i think after that they all just basically you know started doing the same thing but there, there was so much experimentation it was almost like they were trying to reinvent themselves every time out yeah i mean um, that's that definitely feels like in this period i and, and the sort of i'm not I hesitate to use the word sort of like intellectual or the sort of mad genius that emerges from the book i feel uh is dan Aykroyd because mm. he he's the one sort of behind the scenes and, and you know in front of the cameras sort of write writing huge scripts didn't he write a massive script for ghostbusters four hours long it would have been 400 pages or something yeah his original ghostbusters 
was was deranged. That was the one that had you know people driving around in a refrigerator, repair truck, and they were going to other planets. And I mean, I I would love to read that draft. I don't know, you know, even Ivan Reitman doesn't seem to have a copy of it. I imagine Ackroyd has one, but it's never been made public. That original Ghostbuster script, I don't think. Has it um, ever leaked onto the internet or anything? No. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I'll have to check. I, I I'm going to check. But um, his his original his original Blues Brothers um, script was like you know, famously so massive that they put it in a phone directory sleeve <laughs> or he put it in a phone directory sleeve and then he lobbed it over the fence of a producer. But he, uh, yeah, I mean, just, uh, which suggests that he has a sense of humor about it, which is good, but yet he still writes this, this script that is so unwieldy. He you knows know, like, that it's way too long, but he just doesn't care. Just, <laughs> yeah. it's, almost, it's almost worse because he knows it's way too long and makes a joke out of it. But yeah, he still goes, here you go, film this. Yeah, I would love to read that that original version as well. You know, I think they did film they did film some of it. It's kind of there as deleted scenes. But I mean, he he is just out of control. Like his imagination is absolutely out of control. And, you know, I, I, I kind of say, argue in the book that he needed someone to rein him in. So I think on Ghostbusters, he had Ivan Reitman to rein him in. And on Blues Brothers, he had John Landis to rein him in. And then when you get to nothing but trouble, there's no one there because he's directing it as well. And so you end up with this just like... Not, nothing but trouble is what is the uh, film that you sort of pointed me towards. I hadn't heard of it. And uh, I think you can see, I, well, I saw it on YouTube. So presumably nobody's chasing up the copyright with any sort of sense of urgency. <laughs> can you just describe it? Because I, I imagine a lot of people listening might might never have even heard of this film. And it's, it's such a crazy movie. And I'm forever grateful for you to... Yeah, what was your experience like watching it? I, it's just it starts off as one thing and and it's got the recognizable faces you know you've got people like uh chevy chase and demi moore a really young demi moore uh, and then it it goes into something which well last week i watched texas chainsaw massacre and there was a little there's a little bit of that there there's a, just a, that slight well that unhinged feeling of who who even thought of this yeah well like ghostbusters it started with with, it started with what Dan Aykroyd claims is reality. You know, he um, he obviously believes in ghosts and and has many stories. And you know, I've been privileged to speak to him and hear some of these stories. And he's so serious about it. You know, it's not like ghosts is like a fun, silly thing for him. It's like he absolutely believed that he shared a bed with the ghost of Mama Cass. You know, in the early nineties, and he will tell you about the seventeen you know, spectral spirits he's encountered in the list. But he claims that Nothing But Trouble started with him, uh, when he was pulled over by a... Uh, he was driving through a creepy wood when he was doing Saturday Night Live and um, a justice of the peace, some kind of sort of creepy judge, took took him to the house and, and he thought he was going to be dropped through the floor and he was genuinely scared for his life. It was like two in the morning. And so he, he, he kind of imagined, but in a way that he describes it, like he genuinely thinks that it probably was the case that there were creepy goblins and stuff under the, under the floorboards. So he turned that into a film and <laughs> sort of roped in all of his sort of old Saturday Night Live buddies and, and John Candy and Chevy Chase and, and made this film that, yeah, like you, you're absolutely right. It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but a comedy. And a slightly lower body count. <laughs> it's uh, it's got it's got a roller coaster called Mr. Bone Stripper that will take your flesh off, and it's got it's got these horrible horrible things called the the infant bodies that are like giant troll babies, and and Dan Aykroyd played them himself while directing. <laughs> It's like I talked to a couple of people for the book. I was very happy to talk to a couple of people who who were on set of Nothing But Trouble because there isn't that much out there about it. Right. It's a very sort of under 
seen film, but probably rightly so. You know, they were describing just very strange images of Dan Aykroyd directing people while dressed in this grotesque latex sort of monster makeup. The way he filmed it as well was like he gave everyone their own monitor, so all of the actors were giving notes on every take, and it was just carnage by all accounts. It and, looks uh, like it's quite, it's quite. I don't want to say high budget or anything, but it, it didn't look, it doesn't look particularly cheap. It wasn't, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't cheap. It was, you know, the studio believed in it. And it was Dan, it was the guy who created Ghostbusters doing a film about the supernatural again with Chevy Chase, you know, really bringing all these comedy guys together. So, you know, they, they, it wasn't complete insanity. And I think, you know, at the beginning of Ghostbusters, I imagine all the studio people were thinking, oh, like this, this is going to be a disaster. So you just never know. Like, that's one thing I've learned from writing about these films is that everyone thinks the successes are going to be flops and no one knows what's going to be a smash. So it, it might, in, a, in another world, it might have been amazing. But they were, they were throwing money at it. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the fun details I learned from speaking to someone who was there, I spoke to, like, John Candy's business partner who, who was on set a lot, and he said that um, Bruce Willis came to set one day to, to sort of be there to see Demi. And uh, just the image of Bruce Willis watching this stuff going on, I kind of love that. I don't know what he made of it. <laughs> it's probably is this before or after Die Hard? It's after it was it was it was a couple of years after Die Hard, I think. Right. So it was around the time of Die Hard 2. But um Tupac was on set as well. Tupac is in this film. Unbelievable. It's just a it's uh yeah, I mean I kind of finished the book on that and Groundhog Day back to back because I just thought you can't have more of a disaster and a triumph happening at the same time. Like, it's just fascinating that those movies are kind of happening across town around the same time as each other. Yeah, it's kind of an ironic reversal as well, because Dan Aykroyd's the guy who's made these, you know, huge hits, and Bill Murray's sort of gone off to France for a, for a while yeah. and, and had more of a bumpy ride, and then he gets the, the, the payday in the end. Though. Yeah, and they, thought, and they thought Groundhog Day was going to be a disaster. Everyone involved in the making of that, apart from Bill Murray and probably Harold Ramis and a couple of other people, like the studio were freaking out. They didn't know what this thing was. It's a comedy where you've got a guy killing himself, you know, killing himself or trying to kill himself. I mean, that was an insane film as well. And now, like, looking back, it's obvious, you know, oh, yeah, Grandpa Day was always going to be amazing. But at the time, they didn't know what was going on with that film. The film, the film changed a lot. You know, there was a gypsy curse element at one point that it got rid of, but, but essentially, Bill right. Murray, yeah, but Bill Murray like came on and just rewrote the script himself without telling anyone. He didn't tell the director or the studio, but he reworked the script on his own and just turned up with it just before they were about to start filming and uh, just threw everything into disarray. And, uh, they had two different versions of the script on set, which, I, you know, that's, I've never heard of that. A star and a director, they've got two different versions of the film they're trying to make and uh, they're winging it. They were, you know, having scenes on the day and change, rewriting scenes with the actors on set. And so it's fascinating. I mean, I, I just think, especially with comedy, you can't quantify it. You know, it's, you can't, even if all the ingredients are good, you know, why is Ghostbusters considered a classic and Ghostbusters 2 is, is largely derided? It's got exactly the same people in it. You know, you just don't know. It's, uh... it, it, that's so funny because I've, I've only ever seen Ghostbusters 2 once and I think it was at the cinema I don't think I've ever seen it again and we've got the DVD downstairs in a two pack of, with Ghostbusters but I've never it's just never occurred to me to, to watch it again so there weren't people sing along at that screening when you saw that <laughs> no, it, no. it wasn't like mass hysteria no. I, I really like Ghostbusters too. I'm, I'm I'm much mocked in the Empire Office or the Empire Virtual Office as it is these days for my Ghostbusters two championing. Like I genuinely, well, look, I've said it, I've said it, but I probably don't stand by it. I, I I have said before that it's better than the first one. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think there are elements of it that are better than the first one. 
<laughs> I'll just edit out that last bit and just leave you <laughs> saying uh, it's, I stand it's by that. Vigo, Vigo is a better villain than Zool. I stand by that. Oh yeah, no, I can that's the only that's the only element I remember, Vigo the Carpathian. So the fact that I can remember it after one viewing shows uh, <laughs> shows something. Ah, the courtroom scene is great. Anyway, that, that's a different podcast, me championing or attempting to champion Ghostbusters 2. Even but, a podcast um, series. It could be a series. <laughs> You'd expand that into a series. Every element. Um, yeah, but it's, I just find it fascinating with, with, with comedy, especially. I mean, action, you kind of, you know, you put a great action star charismatic action star into a kind of into a good kind of formula plot and you do that you have enough explosions enough gunfire and people are going to watch it and enjoy it but with comedy you, you know look at steve martin he has a massive hit everyone loves him then he does something else and everyone hates it and it gets bad reviews and you just same people but people are reacting so differently and they're trying to, you know, recreate what they had once but you know laughter it you know how do you make people laugh and also the fact that with comedy comedy repeating yourself a joke isn't funny the second time around so it's not like action where you can do another term and keep doing terminator films and there'll be hits like you can't keep doing the same comedy because eventually the joke gets old yeah i i, I would might maybe push back on that terminator, <laughs> terminator well yes all right well you can do it twice and it'll work yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay i'll give you i'll give you a sequel definitely Ah, that was, ah, I've lost the, I had a really good thing li lined up then, and I've, I've just forgotten it completely. What was it? it uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've got it. It's got it. It's because it, that's all staying in. That's gold. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I was thinking about Steve Martin and you saying, because that, that's what gives you a sort of idea of the 80s as this golden age, because it does have these experiments and these fresh faces popping up and then when you get steve martin in the sort of 90s and noughties he seems to have just sort of given up and gone okay what do you want me to do cluso i'll do cluso bilko i'll do bilko you know and it, it's like I'll, I'll just riff on something you know i'll just play bark i'm not doing any improvisations anymore I've, I've run out of steam do you think that's fair or do you think I mean, I quite like some of those uh, late, but, you know, Cheaper by the Does. I'll just do family-friendly fare. Yeah, I mean, definitely they become less wild and crazy, so to speak. But they, you know, there's definitely a tamed element. I, I think part of that is probably that they have kids themselves and then they have grandkids and they start making stuff. I think inevitably when, when people get to that age, you start softening and you, you know, you start making stuff for a younger audience because you're around children a lot. And so you see that even with, you know, the action guys, they're doing films that are PGs and comedies and, and kiddie films. So, yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, Steve Martin's stuff in the 90s is less ex a lot less exciting than his 80s stuff. Bowfinger is great, though. And there are still, there are still interesting things, though, you know. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spanish prisoner and, the, you know, there are, there are probably five or six films he made. But yeah, Sergeant Bilko, I'm not going to defend. It's, it's indefensible. It's not better than the original Phil Silver's version. Definitely not better than the original Phil Silver's version. I'm, 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 sure, I'm not sure I've seen Sergeant Bill. I, I've seen bits of it. I'm not sure I've seen the whole thing. What the Oh, the Steve Martin film, you mean? Steve Martin one, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, Sergeant Bilko's or, was already remade as Boss Cat years uh, <laughs> Boss Cat. Hmm? Did you call it Boss Cat? Isn't it Boss Cat or is it Top Cat? I thought it was Top Cat. Maybe Boss Cat is like what it's called. I don't know. I'm sure it's called Top Cat in America. I've got a, I've got like a feeling. It, yeah, I've got a feeling you're, you're right. I think it's Top Cat and then maybe it was. Yeah, I'm going to Google that as well. This podcast <laughs> is going to be called Hot Takes and Stuff We Should Have Googled Before We Started. Maybe Boss Cat is like what real Top Cat heads call it. Like that's in the kind of the lingo. The it's what part. Scousers call it. <laughs> it's Boss Cat. <laughs> it's a better title. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's there's anyone who's going to argue that what these guys did in the nineties is is better than what they did in the eighties. Is that the case with any of them? Bill Murray is probably the exception, right? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, Bill Murray, I think, is doing he's doing even from Groundhog Day. I think he's just doing a totally different thing. He's he's sort of like it's it's like when he came back and his hair was white and he did Broken Flowers and Rushmore. Mm. He's a sort of like Mickey Rourke. He just looks a totally different person, even though the persona's pretty much there. But yeah, there's there's a, there seems to be a much bigger gap than the years that have passed. Yeah, and he kind of just said goodbye to comedy, really. Like I think he just went, that's it. And Groundhog Day is like that transition almost, where it's half comedy and half philosophical existentialist drama that just happens to be trapped inside a comedy. But yeah, I, I think he, he, out of all of them, didn't really want to be a comedian. Almost. You get that sense that, mm. you know, he wasn't committed to any of the stuff. Like Ghostbusters, he sort of turned up, but didn't particularly want to be there, but was brilliant in it anyway. That's it. I mean, that's his charm, isn't it? If Belushi is manic energy and, uh, you know, Ackroyd is the hokey, weird one, then Murray is that sort of cool indifference, which ends up being stealing the show. Yeah, he's he's the guy who well, yeah he's the guy who wants to be anywhere else. He's the guy who's got his you know headed to the exit. You can't hold him anywhere. He's the cool guy you want to stay at your party, but he's got somewhere else to be. So he's saying goodbye. And so there's that sense of him, you know, which absolutely became him in real life. Is he just the guy that can't be pinned down? He'll just turn up where he wants to. He you know you can't you know. And it's the same. Trust me, it's the same with trying to interview him. I was very. I, lucky. I was going to ask, did you get invited to the party, or was he out the door before you? Uh... No, I was extremely lucky. I was very, very lucky. I was in Cannes, and it was the year of Moonrise Kingdom, and uh, there was a junket, and I was there to interview Wes Anderson and the kids from Moonrise Kingdom, but not Bill Murray, because he was doing like two interviews that day, or two interviews in the whole of Cannes, but he was basically just there for the premiere. And uh, I found out he was doing two interviews uh, by talking to some of the publicists, and I hung around. like for, I just basically camped outside for the whole day, and they... You know, they would go into this little VIP area and, and let him know I was there every now and again. And eventually he must have gone, yeah, whatever, bring him in. And so I got this half an hour sit down with him at about five o'clock in the afternoon that was not scheduled. And it was great. I did like pint of milk with him for Empire. Talked about, talked about a bunch of different stuff, including the Chevy Chase fight that kind of then became 
the beginning of the book. So I think if that hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have written the book in the first place. Oh, wow. That was, that's your inciting in, in, incident. It was the inciting incident. It was that. I, I, he talked about it. I hadn't read him talk about it anywhere else. It's quite a famous incident in some circles, but I hadn't heard him talk about it. And he said some interesting stuff. And then that was it. That was in, oh, gosh, 2012 or something. And then it kind of just stuck in my head. And then a few years later, I was like, that's the beginning of the book. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna write it. So that was yeah, that kind of inspired the whole thing. I think I think that was my first can. I think I was there the same year. Uh, yeah, because I remember being slightly unimpressed by Moonrise Kingdom. Not yeah. not disliking it or anything, but just like it's it's Wes Anderson doing Wes Anderson, and there's not you know I I kind of I've already seen this. So yeah, I, I know what you mean. I haven't I haven't rewatched it. I did like seeing Bruce Willis doing that. I thought you know. Bruce Willis is turning up in this conversation much more than I had anticipated. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I just want him to go back and do a moonlighting reunion with Sybil Shepherd. Maybe, yeah. I think the closest you'll get to that is the Bruce Willis Comedy Central roast, which happened a couple of years ago, where yeah. she and it was just awful. <laughs> it was yeah. awful to watch, uh, but they were both there. Yeah, he strikes me. For, weirdly, for someone who's so, so sort of started his career with this, you know, comedy, for people who don't know about moonlighting you know go and look it up on youtube because it was really metafictional and weird tv uh and really good Re i really enjoyed it but he seems kind of quite humorless now yeah i would i would agree with that i i i had a um a five minute interview with him at a junket and i'm sorry this has turned into a bruce willis podcast there's a reason why he's on my mind at the moment but uh, i've been writing a bit about him but yeah i, I met him at a junket for uh, red 2 the masterpiece that is red 2 oh uh, yeah i i've not seen either of those films yeah they're sort of geriatric they got amazing casts, but yeah, I had this 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 um this junket slot for like five minutes, and he was wearing a dressing gown. It was like two in the afternoon, but he had a hotel. He put on the hotel bathrobe, and I remember the the kind of the PR PR people there operating the junket. Before I went in, they said, "Can you ask him why he's got a bathrobe on?" <laughs> and I said, "I'm not going to," because I think the premiere was a few hours away, and they were quite concerned he was going to turn up to the premiere in a bathrobe. But they said, "Can you can you ask him?" And I was like, "Absolutely not." But I went in, and it was it was it was painful. And yeah, I asked him what's your favorite memory of making Die Hard? And his answer was, I can't remember. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of the, that gives you a sense of the, the banter, the, the witty back and forth. Going on. <laughs> Mono, monosyllabic. I just read uh, Future Noir, the, um, oh, the Blade, Blade Runner, Runner yeah. book. And there's an interview with Harrison Ford at the back, which I, I, it, it's it's kind of hilarious to read as a journalist who has done interviews because uh, maybe if you're a reader, you're just going, oh, Harrison Ford's answer's a bit short. But as the interview goes on, the questions get longer and longer and the <laughs> answers become more and more, yeah, I'm just not that interested. You know? <laughs> I've, had, I've had a few of those interviews myself. Yeah, I including with Harrison Ford. Yeah. All right. Yeah, he's not. He's not a. Uh, he's not a quote machine. He's not like an anecdote dispenser. But fair, fair play. You know, he's Harrison Ford. Yeah, that's okay. I think you know, it's uh, him and De Niro. They they're, they're introverts, right? Like, uh, I kind of get it. I kind of yeah. get it. They yeah. probably absolutely. You get the sense that they're like that. Probably with people who aren't interviewers, they're probably just don't like speaking to people. In terms of. Going back to the <laughs> trying to get away from Bruce Willis for five minutes. Let's get away from Bruce. Let's, 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 uh... What was the name of his album? The uh, Return of Bruno. Yeah, I never understood that either. Because was Bruno like his alter ego or was he waiting for Bruno? And why did he yeah. have a name that was so close to Bruce? <laughs> 
And why why was his first album called The Return of Bruno? Like, why not Here's Bruno for the first time? Like, what, like <laughs> who's anticipating his return? <laughs> oh, look who's here, Bruno. <laughs> Bruno's here. Yeah, I, I haven't got to the bottom of his his Bruno persona, but um, it's uh, that's a thing. That's a thing that he did. That's his that's his Ziggy, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At the end of the tour, he said, this is going to be the last song we ever play as Bruno. I'm going back to Bruce now. <laughs> yeah. Don't expect me to return again. You've had one return. You're not getting another. Yeah. Sorry. Worry, but for, for a birthday present, one of my friends got me a 12-inch vinyl of Bruce Willis singing Under the Boardwalk. That is, has to be heard to be believed. How, how old were, were you when you got this birthday present? <laughs> I would have been in my 20s. Right, right. It, was no, it, was it wasn't when it came out. I th- yeah, I was going to say because I thought it was because I was remember from a charity that song. shop. It was from a charity shop. Ah, right, okay, the charity shop birthday gift. What, what wonderful friends! Most of Bruce Willis's musical output can be found these days. <laughs> but it's probably quite valuable for its rarity in an unsmashed state. But going back to the eighties and get let's get away from Bruce for a, for a few seconds. <laughs> He'll be back. Him or Bruno will return. One of the other things that is sort of unavoidable about looking at comedy is as cultures change, comedy is one of the immediate victims because it's often on the edge of, you know, pushing what is shocking or what is, or it's often dealing with things like sex and the the whole environment since the 1980s, well, since five, 10 years ago has changed so much with the Me Too movement and everything. I mean, some of these comedies are, are make pretty hard watches uh, for that reason. I mean, even, uh, Animal House, which is, you know, as we said earlier, the sort of template and the key to a lot of these has some really dodgy scenes in it. Is that kind of true of all of these? Is it just something we have to take as part of the landscape of the 1980s? Or are there some which were actually quite, you know, looked ahead a little bit more, have survived and, and weathered a bit better? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. As you say, a lot of these films, even the PGs have got stuff which is, is you know, questionable, whether it's language or whether it's sort of the way that sex scenes are portrayed or the way, you know, the, the Animal House, you know, I immediately think of the scene where, you know, John Belushi is spying through the window as girls are getting undressed at this sorority house and there's a comedy erection, of course there is. Um, <laughs> which you know, pushes, but then I, I don't think which we, pushes we, him off the, he's on a ladder. The, yeah, away from the building. I, I can't remember if there's a sound effect. In my mind, there's a sound effect. There probably is. Yeah. I mean, the one, the one that gets talk, talked about maybe the most, well, certainly people I know is the Ghostbusters, uh, the spectral blowjob, as Ivan Reitman puts it, which is the, you know, the montage of, like, one of the montages in Ghostbusters, a film for kids, or a film that is accessible to kids, or marketed at kids. Dan Aykroyd's character, that the sheets are pulled back, and you see he's clearly getting a blowjob, and then it cuts to, like, a female ghost hovering above him, <laughs> so... I remember that scene, yeah. That is in Ghostbusters, that made it through. And he doesn't get slimed play. though, does he? Because that would be there's no there's no slime in oh, that. The no, ectoplasm no is, is yeah. Uh... There's no there's no ectoplasm. You know, there's, there's a lot of dubious stuff, but you know, not enough. I would say those things wouldn't be sufficient to like never watch the film again. I think Revenge of the Nerds is one where I just couldn't watch that film again because there's this you know the scene in it where one of the nerds you know, has sex with this girl and she thinks it's her boyfriend because it's in the dark and he basically tricks her into having sex. It's just so sort of icky and and whatever, but yeah. 
sort of leading on from that question uh, in terms of the, the the sort of the changing sexual mores and, and cultural norms and whatnot. And I also, by the way, uh, I noticed I watched Gremlins 2 for the first time ever, like a year ago or something, and they smoke in, in the office. <laughs> There's like, it's a kid's film and they're smoking in the workplace. It's just... The Gremlins do or the humans do? No, the people, people like... Oh, right, I was going to say, you can't criticise Gremlins for, you know, they're going to smoke every chance they get. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that, in, not that much of an idiot today. Well, these gremlins are, are, are real vandals. Are we supposed to like these? <laughs> they're terrible role models. Are they the heroes? Yeah, the 80s, I mean, the Ghostbusters smoke as well, which you kind right. of always forget about, and they're just, you know, they're, they're all like chain-smoking made like maniacs but that was the 80s god bless the 80s actually i remember the gremlins uh the first film being quite controversial at the time because there's a there was a bit of concern about it encouraging drink driving where... again was it the gremlin driving the plow was he yeah yeah <laughs> I remember, well, he, this is a this is a, a real flashback, but I remember Jonathan King doing his Entertainment USA show and reporting this story of like, uh, there's, there's a sort of the government is worried. And I think, I, I might be making this up, but I think they actually had to sort of do a Gremlins PSA about don't drink and drive. It's not funny as a way of kind of getting, eliminating any sense of scandal or that they were giving a bad message. They should just say, don't do anything from the film Gremlins. <laughs> Nothing in that film should be replicated. Absolutely. Cool. Especially not, don't feed them after midnight and don't uh, add water. Yeah, don't buy any unidentified creature from Chinatown. Just just don't do any of it. I love that film. And talking of like books, I, I read the... I read the novelization of both Ghostbusters and Gremlins um, because th those were our video cassettes essentially when before before video cassettes. I remember the the novelization of Ghostbusters is all in the present tense. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. It, it was such a weird read to just be going. I think uh, maybe they just wrote out the the treatment or, or something. But um, that's uh, interesting. I remember mm -hmm. it being kind of quite odd as a kid reading it and going, aren't books supposed yeah. to be in the past tense? Was the ghost blowjob in the novelization? do you remember? I tell you what, I bet there was, because um, those novelizations tended to be a little bit risque. Yeah, you know? the Terminator uh, one famously has like a very lurid sex scene, which Chris Hewitt often <laughs> quotes to me at length. Yeah, it's unpleasant, but he may have written it. But yeah, they, they do kind of go off on one. <laughs> William, William Kotzwinkel wrote the E.T. novelization, and Kotzwinkel was an actual, an actual novelist. He's a renowned novelist. And I think maybe they gave him the job as a friend of the family or something, just as a, a big money day. And if you read the novelization, it's actually really good, but it's got lots of things about nipples and stuff in it that as a kid reading, you know, the age group that you would expect to read that sort of thing wasn't... Yeah, that wasn't necessarily appropriate. But anyway, following on from the from what we were saying earlier, also um, it's wild and crazy guys, isn't it? I mean, there's there's there, there don't seem to be many uh, female figures here. Although there were there were some female comedians, it's not it's not they didn't seem to make it so much into the big time. Why why was that? Was that just a, the usual story, or was it particularly hard for comedians? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it just, you know, I, I would love to have written about some female stars, you know, if nothing else, just kind of make it more interesting. But Gilda Radner, you know, would have thought would have been appearing in big budget films and it just didn't happen, like for whatever reason. And I'm sure sexism was a major part of it. I think that was just, it was like a boys club, really. 
And so, you know, there were funny women on Saturday Night Live, Lorraine Newman and, you know, Jane Curtin, uh, who kind of appeared in Coneheads later on with Ackroyd, but they didn't really, you know, it was it was a boys club thing, you know, the Ghostbusters are four guys, four blokes hanging out, Stripes is set in a very male world. The, okay. first, the first one is, the, the, the recent remake changed that. Of Ghostbusters? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's got some funny stuff. It's, it's yeah, I, you know. I like, you, I like the remake. I'll, I'll go on record, I'll say it's better than Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's controversial, but... um. It is with me. It is with me. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of a shame because I, I you know, it, it's great that these very funny women get the kind of lead roles. But weirdly, I think Chris Hemsworth is kind of the funniest character in the film. He gets the kind of Rick Moranis role, just coming in and just being insane in every scene. But yeah, it's a shame that I, you know, it's fine. I just wish it had been funnier. I wish that they had got another film. You know, it, they could have a lot could have come of that if it had done better. I, um, I... it was a very toxic, you know, uh, group of people reacting to it who took against it because they were women it's fine it's 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 like a freestyle comedy i think it's got some really funny stuff in it i i really didn't mind it i just thought it fell apart in the last 30 minutes and it just became a really you know i, th- I think a lot i think big hollywood comedies that there's a there's a tendency to basically turn them into action movies in the same way a lot of action movies turn into comedies and i just i found that final battle kind of as boring as as many last acts of, of action movies where you're going okay the premise was good but you're just blowing stuff up now it had a very improv kind of feel to it mm. largely because they were improvising it and you know i got to go on the set and watch them literally doing alts i don't know i, I, I think the thing about the original ghostbusters is because Ackroyd was taking it so seriously it wasn't just gobbledygook it was like there was you know real he was researching real mythology and it felt like there was a genuinely kind of scary drama happening but they were just doing comedic riffs on it whereas i feel like the new one didn't have that same sense of menace and it didn't have the great villain and it just felt a bit too kind of like an snl sketch Mm. rather than you know a genuine like an epic proper epic thing where you were invested in the story but you know it was fine but yeah i I don't know why you know the 80s was not great for women in hollywood generally i don't think that you know it was it was very much a kind of a male driven thing i asked ivan reitman about it and he was saying that that was you know it was the male driven comedies that were do well internationally and they were the ones that hollywood were greenlighting and it was all kind of driven by money Mm. but you know gilda radner I, i wish she had been given some vehicles she had so much charisma and was so great on the small screen and it's just a real shame that she wasn't given the same opportunities that these guys were i mean my unsung sort of heroine of the of those years is madeline khan i think every every moment she's on the screen she's the funniest thing in whatever she's in yeah she's Um, great i really i recently watched clue and just her line reading the line is something like you hated her you killed her you hated her and she says i hated her so much (laughs) it's just (laughs) i can't do it but it's the best flames flames at the side of my face <laughs> and, and her in young frankenstein as well so just yeah she's amazing her, in young frankenstein. blows me away what about i mean there, there are some obviously you keep your focus on the snl guys and the sctv guys yeah exactly and 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 that core of those two great uh, tv shows but this you, there was sort of some films that sort of sneaked out there that you couldn't cover, I guess. I mean, I think for me, the, the I think you mention it a, a bit in passing, but like Spinal Tap is one of 
the biggest comedies. Is that, do you, I mean, it doesn't really fit anywhere, does it? It's a bit of a sweet, what's that word? Sweet genres? Uh, one of a kind, I guess. I should stop trying to speak Latin. <laughs> I think we should speak more Latin. I try and learn. I did Latin at, at, at school, so I'll, I'll try to to get some. But um, yeah, Spinal Tap is one of my favourite films. It is genius. From every frame of that film is 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 hilarious. You know, I would I would love to write about it. I could write a book about Derek Smalls and um, the contents of his trousers. You know, it's it's so full of. Again, it's like it's like with the Steve Martin thing, where you've got every type of comedy there. You've got funny wordplay. You've got brilliant physical comedy. You know, with the and people getting trapped in pods and going through extra machines. It's, it's 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 you've got raunchy comedy, you've got just silly sight gags, you like every every single type of comedy is is stuffed into that film. That is definitely one of the best comedies of the of the eighties, if not ever. I've got it's, I've got the title for your book. I've got the title for your book. Your book should be called Our Bassist Wrote This. <laughs> there we go let's green light this let's, <laughs> let's get this happening but that that is a that is an absolutely brilliant brilliant comedy but yeah you're right like a christopher guest didn't really come through in the same way like he didn't become big a-lister they weren't kind of green lighting movies i guess that's what these eight people i was tracking kind of had in common is that they were all having movies you know greenlit based on them starring in it even rick moranis you know was, it just seems insane that i mean he's a he's a brilliant comedian and and the nicest guy in the world but the fact that he became an a-lister is just kind of brilliant and and wouldn't happen these days i don't think yeah yeah i i, I would struggle to think of someone who was uh i guess steve carell is maybe in this in the kind of the rick moranis mold of someone who's a little bit sort of geeky looking and mm. not your kind of your dashing a-lister guy but became a huge comedy star i don't know yeah just the fact that he was so huge as big as he as big as he became is amazing so christopher guest kind of did his own thing and he obviously created his own kind of genre of comedy and and has done brilliant film after brilliant film but yeah didn't quite didn't quite fit into the the mold what film book would you uh recommend to someone who who perhaps maybe hasn't read a film book before or or, or just a fan of film books and, and this is this is one to go for yeah, it's a it's a hard question because my bookshelves are like ninety percent film books. So I just can't get enough of, of of reading them, and there are so many I could point out. Obviously, Easy Riders, Raging Balls was like a massive influence on on my book, and um, you know I had a copy of that close by, and that kind of inspired me to do the kind of jumping from one character to another and kind of Iskind thing. Gave you quite a nice review as well. Yeah, that was one of the that was one of the the, the most amazing things that came out of this. I would never have believed that Peter Biskind would read my book you know Easy Riders Raging Bull was is a book that I loved for as long as I can remember and read many many times and so the day I got an email from my editor in New York like saying Peter Biskind's read your book and is giving a, a blurb for it I was I was kind of amazed and very excited about so I'm not going to pick that because it's too obvious because um, mm. I think everyone knows about that who's interested in film. There's a book called The Men Who Would Be King by Nicole Laporte, which is about DreamWorks. I think the full title is Movies, Moguls and a Company Called DreamWorks. And um, I'm not 100% sure you can get it in the UK. I thought I remembered reading that for legal reasons they're not able to publish it here and so you kind of have to get it ordered from america i can't remember if that's 100 true but it's a it's a really cracking read it's it's um i think quite similar to mine in terms of it's sort of a combination of looking at the kind of the business side of it but then also full of anecdotes and and trying 
to kind of you know see people as people and get a sense of their personalities and so it's you know it's got Spielberg it, it follows films like Gladiator and Shrek and all, all these DreamWorks things with the backdrop of telling the story of DreamWorks and, and all the kind of the big egos involved and the corporate struggles and, and all that and it's just really entertaining I remember reading that on holiday probably 10 years ago and just loving it and it was like I had to read it and think think it was like a day and a half I just almost a day like I just couldn't put it down so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest recommend that yeah I'm gonna just recommend that because I don't think enough people have heard of it and it's it's I don't think she's written another book since but it's it's great she she um she was like a variety writer who who did this one book and it's well worth checking out Nicole Laporte it's it's got loads of good stories it was a little bit it was a little bit controversial when it came out because um i think there were sort of heated responses from some of the people she was writing about to some of the stories i remember i went to the robin hood junket and i asked russell crowe about it because the book had just come out and i just read it Mm. and there's a whole bit on gladiator he doesn't come out of it very well and uh, asked him about it and he he, he didn't he had an (laughs) argument with a guy from uh mark lawson and it was about his accent somebody asked him what were you going for with your accent or something like that and sounded a bit irish i don't know if it's a great idea to ask russell crowe what were you trying for with 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 this or that um but yeah i remember that that was this that would have been the same day so maybe he just wasn't happy full stop but he definitely wasn't happy about the book and um there's a book called the studio which is an older one um i don't know if you've heard of that it's by a guy called john gregory dunn and um he basically 20th century fox unwisely allowed him to hang out inside the studio access all areas for a year so he spent the whole of 1967 wandering around inside fox and sitting in on every meeting like he literally was allowed to go anywhere he wanted and (laughs) wrote this book called the studio where you know he's writing about films like planet the apes and dr doolittle and and various other things and it's an amazing insight into just how chaotic mad like you know harking back to what we were talking about earlier where no one knows what's going to be big and there's just these often these big budget films are just driven by fear and he's sitting in on meetings where people are just panicking and and it's great it gives you a really really good insidery sense and and probably hasn't been repeated since because i think the studios just went why the fuck did we do that (laughs) don't let him in again um, but it's 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 great. It's that's uh, the studio. John Gregory Dunn is um, Joan Didion's husband. Is he? Okay. Yeah, and they were actually a screenwriting couple. They wrote quite a few uh, screenplays, including Panic in Needle Park, one of the sort of uh, lesser known early Al Pacino movies, which is absolutely brilliant. It's, it's yeah. superb. Isn't uh, he- I think they I wrote. That. I saw that a few years ago. Does he? Does he not? Does Al Pacino not throw a dog into a river in that? I don't remember that scene, but it's possible. I mean, it's it's fairly gritty stuff. And I think they also did. They also did that one with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer. The quite later, like in the nineties, uh, one of his later romantic films. Where, but they did they did a fair share of of sort of quite successful screenplays. They wrote a Star Is Born, the Chris Christopherson version and also um, her his nephew is um griffin dunn from uh oh from after hours yeah after hours and uh american werewolf in london good trivia you're you're a john gregory dunn trivia game is strong (laughs) nick it's been an absolute joy it's been really good fun but yeah no thanks for having me on it's been it's been uh it's been fun it's been good to good to largely talk about bruce willis but occasional detours into other topics absolutely and i hope everyone will go out and buy your book if they haven't already because it's uh it's 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 brilliant it's a, a really good really good history of the 1980s comedy boom
Okay, so just to finish off with some more trivia, uh, Top Cat was renamed Boss Cat when it was released in the UK because of a clash with a identically named popular cat food. The Gremlins did release a drink driving awareness campaign and the books which Nick recommended were The Men Who Would Be King, an almost epic tale of moguls, movies and a company called DreamWorks by Nicole Laporte and The Studio by John Griffin Dunn. So that's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening and please remember to subscribe and like and spread the word. Till the next time, take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.